We're excited to launch our conversation series podcast with the support of our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in, and the planet we all live on. Hi, I'm Barry Liberman, editor and publisher of Dumbo Feather, and you're listening to our conversation series podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting to Melbourne sociologist Susan Carland. Susan shares her experiences as an activist, academic, Muslim and mother while advocating for a more open-hearted Australia and an end to ignorance. All you fangirls out there are going to have to, you're going to have to line up. Me first. Um, thank you all coming tonight is very special. I am a very big fan. I'm going to give a few facts about Susan and then you can tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. Um, Seventh generation Australian, family arrived on the first fleet. Fact, we think, we think. With that fact maybe. Um, Muslim Australian of the year 2004. Yes, fact. (laughs) Completed your PhD on Muslim feminism, feminists. Yeah, sort of. Fact-ish. <laughs> it was about the way Muslim women fight sexism and there was a lot about feminism, but... Uh, uh, sorry, the, the way Muslim women fight sexism. There was a lot about feminism in there, but some of the women didn't identify as feminists, so that, that was why I say fact-ish. Some were, some did say I'm a feminist, some said, didn't say they were. So give me a smarty pants title of your PhD. Fighting Hislam. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so ace. <laughs> um, you now teach university sociology students? Uh, actually, new job. I'm now in the National Centre for Australian Studies. What do you teach? Monash. What do you teach them? Introduction to Contemporary Australia is what I'm teaching at the moment. Awesomeness. You're a mother of two children? Facts. Married to a handsome man? Facts. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Different man. <laughs> Anyway, um, when, we, when we were speaking just before, you were saying, oh God, if someone asks me a question about why I became a Muslim or why I wear a headscarf, I might lose it. So I thought the first question I would ask would be, <laughs> if you could um, talk yes. me through yes. the hijab. Mm and feminism Mm -hmm. and how they intersect. Okay. Um, I think the way that I would say they intersect is that for a lot, not all, but for a lot of Muslim women, um, they would say that wearing the hijab is actually a feminist act because they would say that we live in a world that constantly commodifies the female body. It's used to sell everything from cars to lawnmowers to toothpaste. It's constantly sexualized and commodified in that way. And so for them, wearing the headscarf and and covering their bodies is about rejecting that commodification of the female form and saying, I decide who gets to see how I look. And there are things that are more important about who I am as a person than my the size of my breasts or what my legs look like or, or anything like that. And I, it's very much a statement about um, take me more uh, for my mind than, than my appearance, I suppose, is, is, is what they'd say about that. And in that way, I suppose it is feminist. What do you, what do you say about that? I, I can see the merit in it, I think. I mean, for me, ultimately, and I guess for, you know, nearly all Muslim women, any Muslim woman who chooses to wear the headscarf, um, that... Ultimately, it's an act of worship. Before political statements or feminist Mm. statements or cultural statements or anything like that, it should be an act of faith. Mm. This is a religious act. Other things come on top of it, um, just by virtue of the world that we live in. Um, But at the core of it, for me anyway, it's a religious thing. And I can certainly see the benefit, the the feminist benefits and the anti-consumerist benefits and, and all those sort of things that come with it. But at the end of the day, the foundation for me has to be a spiritual, a spiritual bedrock. So I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish tradition, which when we were kids wasn't a political 
position yeah. <laughs> or tradition. It was just tradition and faith and history and family. And then as I grew older, you know, and, and Orthodox Jewish women wear a shaitel, so they wear a, um, a wig. And I guess where I'm at, maybe you can't answer it, so I'm working it out on stage. But where, but where I'm at with it is I don't, with all respect, so um, I was a pretty solid atheist. That's what, how I declared myself. But I've slightly and distinctly altered my branding. Uh, I'm now, I, I would say I'm agnostic, which for me is less dogmatic and yeah. I, I like less dogma. I think there's room for mystery and magic in what we don't know. And the minute you think you know, you don't know. So why would, if one had you know, faith in God, why would there need to be a gendered response to that faith? Why, why does it need to be gendered? Well, I think first and foremost, God in Islam is not a male or a female. Yeah. God is not a male, it's not a he God, it, it's a genderless God. Mm. But the religion of Islam is meant to operate in the world in which we live. and. Uh, the reality is that majority of people do identify as male or female in mm. society. And that that's not necessarily seen as a bad thing or um, a, a competitive thing or superior, inferior or whatever, anything like that. And so all the fundamental aspects of being a Muslim and living as a Muslim for men and women are the same. same we have the same obligations of prayer, charity, fasting, all that sort of stuff. It's the same. It's in, there's in really only a few uh, physical manifestations. So women uh, are supposed to cover the hair. Majority of scholars would say that. Some say they don't have to, but most say that they do. Um, and that men are supposed to have a beard is, is sort of the, uh, I suppose, the equivalent for men. But for men and women, there is this premium placed on modesty. And I recognise that we live in a society now where modesty isn't seen as anything particularly um, uh, worth aspiring to. You know, it's not something, you know, we live in a society that's very much about being out there and self-promotion and sexy and, and all that sort of stuff. So modesty doesn't have a lot of currency in modern Western society. But it is still something that seems really important in Islam for men and women, not just in terms of physical dress, but in terms of behaviour. Um, it's seen as something that for, for everyone is something that is honourable and good. And so modesty of dress for men and women is something that is seen as a, a positive. And I guess it, it comes from that. And so why was your PhD focusing on feminism and that feminist response from within Islam? I think because um, I saw it happening everywhere around me and I knew for a fact that it had been happening for you know, hundreds of years in, in Muslim history. But very few people outside of the Muslim community seemed to know about it. And in fact, when I'd mentioned to people about it, they'd, they, they couldn't believe that it was happening. They couldn't believe that there were Muslim women doing this. And if they were, they assumed that they were all, that they all had uh, fatwa on their head and that their husbands, if they knew, would want to kill them. There was this real disbelief about the existence of it. And I, Because we have stories like Malala. I mean, we have so many stories, but that's just yeah. one high-profile story of... Yeah a female Muslim child wanting to be educated, yep. granted in a repressive regime. But yeah, absolutely. And so that's the thing, my PhD wasn't trying to paint that every Muslim community around the world was this feminist utopia. It's saying, of course, sexism exists. I mean, no one can deny that. And I don't do the sisterhood any favours by pretending this isn't happening. What my PhD was about saying, yes, Muslim women recognise that there is sexism occurring in our communities, like in every community around the world, but they're actually fighting back against it. They're not either these passive victims who just acquiesce to it or, you know, the active enablers of it. These are women that have been pushing back against this and have always been pushing back against it, but nobody knew about it. No one outside of the Muslim community knew about it. And in fact, when I went to do my literature review for it, for my PhD, there was hardly anything written about it. Mm. And I thought, well, this needs to change. This mm. needs to be documented. Because like you said, everyone knows about the sexism. No one knows about the pushback. I'm a fan of yours for a lot of reasons, um, for your brilliance and your ability to articulate yourself when under fire. Your compassionate thoughtfulness is particularly resonant for me as it was on stage the other night. And um, 
as a young Jewish mother, I still have chosen to send my kids to a Jewish day school. And um, it's a liberal progressive day school, but nonetheless we have security guards now who have to pack guns. And that's a new thing, that's a recent thing. And a terrifying recent thing. And that's not the Australia that I grew up in. So when I think about religious hatred and the reason we need those guns and those guards, I don't think I'd have the elegance that you have when staring at or even responding to that rageful violence. And you've been doing it in the most incredible way. I've got a note here about your um, campaign. Was it the campaign last year? For every hate tweet that you receive, you'll donate a dollar to UNICEF. Yeah. So, you're a legend. <laughs> and I think your courage is magnificent and quite awe-inspiring because I know that when I think of my children walking to school, as an Australian, I'm just an Aussie. It's one of my identifications. I'm a female, I'm a writer, I'm an editor, I, I'm a businesswoman, I'm Jewish, I'm, it's like down the list. But, you know, for cultural reasons and, you know, there's some good songs, we're there. Um, and you get colour on a Friday. Um, so how do you come at what you've been experiencing, which is as a result of 9-11, it's the mm. world post 9-11 that really is what's happening on Twitter for you. How do you come at it from this very resilient place? Mm. I guess I felt I didn't have a choice. What, did the, what are my options? My options are to become bitter or sarcastic, hmm. nasty in response. But I didn't want, my response isn't defined by them and their actions. My response is defined by me and who I am and my character. Um, and so I thought, well, who am I? What do I believe? I know what my knee-jerk response wants to be, which is to, you know, write a really stinging rebuke and point out all their typos and all that sort of thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but such an academic. Isn't that, that's the yeah. knee jerk. Yeah, right, I'm going to tell you where it's at and I'm going to retweet this to everybody. But I thought that's, <laughs> I, I want to be better than that. I want to be, even though it's, you know, it's not my, it's not my natural nature. My natural nature is to be lazy and selfish and greedy and sarcastic. I mean, that's actually my natural nature, but I wanted to be better than that. And I thought, well, how can I be better than that? How can I try to do something for all this ugliness that they're putting into the world, sending to me? I don't want to just send out more ugliness or just ignore it. I wanted to do something positive, push out, you know, if you want the, to, to even have the balance, I guess. Hmm. And that's, yeah, that's why I did it. We were talking before about being neurotic mothers yeah. Probably normal mothers. Yeah. Just quickly texting home before we got up on stage. Yes. Is my daughter home? Yes. Uh, have they eaten food? Can you send me a picture of the food they're yeah. eating? <laughs> <laughs> that was me. Um, it's part of being Jewish. Um, and I guess being a mother and being in this position that you're in, vocal, public, out there, what makes you want to step up as opposed to run and hide? Mm. It's funny, I actually don't have a desire to step up. Mm. That's actually not the motivation. Like the Twitter thing, for example, was never, I wasn't trying to start a campaign or a movement or anything like that. That was never the intention. It was just whoops. Yeah, yeah. It was just this unrelenting wave of hate that gets sent to me on Twitter. I remember um, when I started it, UNICEF said, oh, we'll monitor your tweets for 24 hours to see because, you know, I couldn't keep up. And they said, in 24 hours, you got 1,800 hate tweets. So it was a lot. What's the hate about? What's like? It's all because I'm Muslim. All of it. All is because I'm Muslim. I don't get it about anything else. Mm. Um, and so when I decided to do it, it wasn't like, okay, so I'm going to start this movement and I'll, you know, I'll start a change.org petition and I'll send out press releases. It was none of it. 
it was just, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I put a tweet on my Twitter account because I thought, well, the trolls should know the contract they're entering into with me that when they send this, this was, I will donate on their behalf. That was it. And that was, that was the, the sum total of my thought. It was just, this is how I'm going to just live what I believe. That was all it was. Uh, but a journalist saw it on my Twitter account and she wrote an article about it. She didn't even interview me. She just wrote the whole article based on my Twitter feed and it just, the way news stories uh, sort of cycle around, other people picked it up and it just went from there. Your handsome husband yeah. doesn't like Twitter for mm -hmm. the very fact that you would be exposed to trolls. And so how, how do you guys discuss that? Like why, why have you chosen to be on the platform? Mm. And I guess because I can certainly see a lot of negatives to social media. Like I think a lot of people can, you know, there are a lot of no negatives to social media and a lot of things that sort of trouble me about it and the way it sort of encourages this performance society, the way we're all performing now on social media. But I see benefit in it as well. I like the people that I can connect with. It's the quickest way for me to be across news stories. Um, things that I never would have caught otherwise because of, you know, who I choose to follow. And so for me, I still feel the positive outweighs the negative. Mm. Um, and, and that's why I do it. And who inspires you on your Twitter feed? I'm just like Ooh. thinking I want to scroll your Twitter feed now. <laughs> <laughs> um, who inspires you just on that resilience note? Who are you looking at that's doing amazing things? No, funny, in terms of actual names, I wouldn't, I don't know who springs to mind, but I guess it's just, it's often just the everyday people doing good things. You know, you just come across the story of the, the doctor who volunteers his time to help to serve refugees because they can't afford Medicare and that sort of thing. Like I just see those stories and I think, yeah, they, they're the kind of people that make me think, just, just keep going. Mm. You just keep going and uh, be who you are and, and try to do good. Um, it's no real, there's no big names in there. It's more just the, the everyday person just doing their thing and maybe even just the people that I know in my life, not even people on social media, but, you know, just those humble servants everyone sees and they're not the ones that anyone would even really notice, but mm. they're the ones that are um, vacuuming out the community centre just because it's the right thing to do or whatever it is, you know, mentoring young people and no one knows about them. Mm. It's, those are the people that I think that's the life, that's the fulfilling life. There's this great article by Rebecca Solnit where she talks about the iceberg or society is the iceberg and we see the top of the iceberg that's above the water, which is the nasty, selfish, vicious, murderous, um, self-serving part of society. But it's the nine-tenths mm. that's under the water that we don't see and we don't talk about and it's the kindness amongst yeah. us, between us, the network that keeps society actually together. Mm. But it's not seen, That's it's not it. as visible. And you have to choose to consciously focus on that because it's so easy otherwise just to see all the, the disaster and the ugly and the horror and you have to go, I have to force myself to, to see that, that everyday interaction of goodness that exists. Mm. So I want to get back to one of the apparent facts on your fact sheet. Yeah. You grew up a Baptist and then you, as a very young woman in your teens, mm. you moved to become a part of an evangelical church. Mm -hmm. yep. that, yeah, that was part of it, yep, yep. Before researching religion and finding Islam. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an, a fascinating journey. You were young, you yeah. were 14, yeah. 15. Yeah, you... yeah, I was 17 when I started looking into Islam, 19 when I converted, and I was in my early teens when I started going to a different church to my family. Yeah, so you're obviously, you were obviously a seeker. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because like I was completely not interested in God, religion or spirituality. Yeah. I was very interested in dark and difficult boys. <laughs> <laughs> that was a decade right there. <laughs> Um, so I'm fascinated by deep, mm. powerful spiritual journeys because that just, you know, maybe is yet to blossom in me. But um, you were a seeker, so what mm. were you seeking and what did you find? I think I was trying to, I knew I believed in God, but I didn't know where is God? Is God everywhere? Is God nowhere? Is God in every religion, one religion, some religions? 
And I guess I just wanted the, what do you mean you knew you believed in God? I felt that I did. Like I, it was just something I felt I knew. It was something I felt I knew about the universe. I just genuinely believed that there was a God. Um, but I still had a lot of like questions. Is there like a thing, sorry. Yeah. Is there like a thing or a moment where no. you felt like you, like mm. did something happen? Was there a moment? Mm. Was it just like Sadly, no. I wish vibe. there were. I wish there were some great story okay. of I was drowning in the beach yeah, and yeah. I said, God save me. Yes, and, that yeah. would be so Mel Brooks. That's what happened to Cat Stevens, actually. <laughs> That's how Cat Stevens became Muslim. He was drowning in the beach and he said, God, if you save me, I will work for you. I'm and sorry, but that is so Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so that didn't yeah. happen. So it was just a, just like a feeling. No, it was just, yeah, it just sort of, I guess, a quiet belief, a belief inside me that I couldn't shape. Hmm. I kind of wanted to not believe in God, but I couldn't. Couldn't do it. Um, and so I just, but I had a lot of questions about life, the universe and everything. And so I started looking. And what did you find? Um, to my surprise, Islam made a lot of sense to me. I remember when I started looking and... I wasn't interested in Islam at all, didn't want to know about it, didn't want to read about it. Uh, but I'd keep accidentally coming across things, like I'd be flicking through the newspaper and there would be an article about Islam, or I'd be channel surfing, there'd be a documentary about Islam. So I kept sort of coming across it and thinking, wow, this is, hmm, this is interesting. It started to sort of um, attract my interest. And so then I decided to go back to the, I decided I didn't want to know what, you know, modern day Muslims were saying. I want to know what do the traditional classical Muslim scholars have to say. So I went and started reading through them. When I was meant to be studying for my VCE exams, I was hmm. reading through these really very ancient, you know, very old texts um, of, of old opinions and that sort of thing to say, well, what, what is the, what's the nectar of this religion? What, what's really being said here? Um, and, but it took two years, it took about two years for it before I thought, I think I do believe this. And, and your mum wasn't happy? No, not happy at all. I think all my mum knew about Islam was not without my daughter, which is this yeah. really, you know, sad, awful, not remotely positive um, story. And I think she honestly thought when I was going to become a Muslim that I would marry a man who would take me off to his country and she'd never see me again and I'd be you know, oppressed and all that sort of thing. And um, yeah, she really struggled with it. And I think, you know, she was also a very much a second wave feminist. And so when I said, well, I want to wear the headscarf, she really didn't like that. And she's like, why would you want to do that with so much what we fought against? And, um, you know, it took a long time for us to sort of come to a place where we could uh, sort of understand each other. I think it's only now that I'm a mother, I can see where she was coming mm. from. At the time, I'm like, God, mom, you know, why can't you just let me live my life? But now that I have, you know, but now that I have a daughter and a son, like I know if my kids said they wanted to get involved with something yeah, terrible, if she becomes like, like a cult punk. or something, yeah, yeah. I would be, I, I would be worried too. Mm. So I can see now where she was coming from. Mm. Uh, and but now everything's fantastic, really good with my mum. Mm. Yeah, because they've understood through you. Yeah, I think, and I think their worst fears weren't realised, mm. you know, I think that helps. Um, and yeah, they've come to know a lot more about Islam than they did, that I didn't become who they feared that I would. They like Waleed, they can see that we're sort of, you know, pretty normal people and I think that, <laughs> you know, that helps. Um, you don't want to pull the curtain back on any family. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are so just... boring. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, I think it's just, she can sort of be reassured that, okay, things are okay. Mm. You're okay. So when you were exploring the classical scholarly thinking around Islam, this is, I mean, I'm just talking, for, I struggle. Yeah. Because I struggle with, I love men. Don't struggle with that. I married a handsome, beautiful man and I'm raising two. So, um, but I think for me as a feminist with religion, I struggle with a patriarchal narrative. Yeah. And I'm always looking for the powerful, well, I'm, a, I'm pretty specific. I'm looking for the powerful spiritual savant mother mm. leader. Yeah. How <laughs> <laughs> much grass? Is there one? Yeah, there are a few. And that's okay. what's been lovely for me in Islam okay. is finding these great stories of uh, women, these amazing female leaders, and they're all really different, which I love, that there wasn't, it wasn't just the, 
the privileging of the quiet housewife mm. mother. Mm. But I mean, there is that, but there's also these. You mean in the classical literature, yeah, in the kind yeah, of. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, but then there's also these badass female leaders who we don't even know if they were married, we don't know if they had children, and they're just talked about being these amazing leaders, or these Sufi saints who went and lived alone, and whenever men proposed it, like, oh, just get away from me, not interested. And they had all these female, uh, they had all these male and female students who looked at them adoringly, and they were just like, just leave me. I just want. so there's all these different sort of ways of being this great Muslim woman, and I like that. I like mm. that it wasn't just the the narrow, this is all there is, and this is, you have to fit into this box to be great. Um, and Did so, you have to hunt hard for those? I, they're certainly not spoken about the way I think they should be. And that's the reality of, you know, mostly men being in control of religious interpretation. That's just the reality of, that's like you said, that's patriarchy. Um, you had to write your PhD yeah, because you couldn't find yeah. the material that you were looking for. Right, and but what was great is talking because I interviewed all these women for my PhD and they were the ones that had done all this work before me and, you know, this woman who decided I'm going to do the first female interpretation of the Quran and a feminist interpretation of the Quran and this is why all these men are wrong and they don't even realise it. And, you know, mm. they're just fearlessly out there doing this stuff or they're doing this activist work um, and, they, and, they all, and they all except one said that they used the religion as their motivation to fight the sexism. Mm. Um, and then when they saw, you know, patriarchal sexism and often, you know, horrendous misogyny around them, the, one of the things that upset them the most wasn't just that it was happening, but they thought it was such a betrayal to their religious tradition. Mm. And so they felt religiously indignant about that as well. Um, and so just hearing their stories was really reassuring, really encouraging. So funny, while, while I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation I once had um, across the Friday night family Shabbat table. And um, I remember challenging a few things about Orthodox Judaism and, and some constructs and whatever, and someone who, who is a practicing Orthodox person related to me said to me, uh, you know, well, if you don't like it, you can leave. Mm. And I have to say it was a bit of a watershed moment for mm. me because I was like, you are right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then I sort of, I, that was a real moment for me yeah. to say, yeah, I think I might bail yeah. on this one. Yeah. But I, that's because I didn't, there's no God for me yeah. in, in it. So there mm. was an, a no connection to text, ancient yeah. text, classical text, etc. Much more excited about other texts, yeah. but um, it's inspiring to think yeah. of a rewriting. Well, that's the thing. It's like if it's like you know the faceless Muslim man saying that to me, and I'd say, well, you don't actually get to decide what the religion is. Mm. You are no more holy than me, and that might be your interpretation, but that doesn't mean you're right. You don't have the mind of God just because you have a penis. Mm. And so I am just, and all these other women are just as worthy as you to go and go, well, what actually does our religion teach? And you know what? You might be wrong. Mm. So I could leave. So could you. Mm. You don't own this. Mm. Um, and you don't get to, and I've, I'm already saying that to my daughter, you need to decide for yourself now what Islam means for you. And there will always be other Muslims that tell you you have to do this or you can't do that or whatever. Mm. And they might be right, but you need to know for you, what does it mean for you to be a Muslim? And what does that look like? And who is God to you? You have to work that out for yourself because in the end, you know, there's an audience of one. That's what I believe. In the end, you only have an audience of one and that's what it comes down to. So interesting. So I'm thinking about my two oldest kids. One of them's an avowed atheist. He's just like that. When he was four, <laughs> he said to me, Mom. I said, yeah, he goes, I don't believe in God. And I said, why? And he said, well, everybody talks about him, but no one's ever seen <laughs> <laughs> So that, that's his whole vibe and he sticks with that. And he told me the other day he lost his tooth. He's like, please, mum, just don't go on about the tooth fairy because <laughs> yeah. I'm all over it. Yeah, right. So he's a tooth fairy atheist as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you've got to hold on to something. Yeah. Um, but it's that interesting thing yeah. of sort of bringing up your kids to, and my daughter, in mm. contrast, is like the great believer. Mm. She's just a love bug and she's just open and... I'm a little bit scared about that, but she's um, she's amazing. Yeah, and so it's 
how to parent mm. when you've taken a position. Yeah. How to parent open minds. Yeah. And allow them to kind of stay. Absolutely. That way. Yeah. Even though you're obviously bringing up your children with tradition. Yeah. Um, and I am too. Yeah. And so, how to not be weird about that? Yeah. When you raise independent-minded children, Absolutely. and then they go and choose things. Yeah, it's this idea that you want them to be open-minded, and I guess mm. we have to parent open-handed. We can't clench our fist on anything, any ideas or who we want them to be. You know, we might have ideas in our head about who we want them to be or where they should go, but it's it has to be that open-handed of trusting them and where they're going and what they're going to choose and that it is. And I think especially for me, because I am a convert and I did radically change, you know, what I believed when I was a teenager, you know, what a hypocrite not to want that for my own children as well, to come to their own decisions and, and decide what they think for themselves and about who they are. You're ace. Can I, can I call you when I need parenting advice? <laughs> I don't think you'll want to do that. <laughs> parenting open-handed, my whole history is like, as I said to someone the other day, I'm loving the stage my children are at because mm. I have full control. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. That's just the truth of it. Yeah. For anyone else who's a parent. Four yeah. to 11 is the best, the best ages. Yeah. Four to 11, easily. Total control. Oh, yeah, but pass all the hard. They can dress themselves now and a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not <Yeah>. everyone. Um, <laughs> talking about the oldest one. Um, so open-handed. Mm. I, I, I had this great article I wanted to show you. I, I wanted to show everyone. It's one of my favourites. It came out in the Washington Post this year. Merkel meets Amal Clooney and her husband to discuss refugees. Ah, uh, yeah. That's nice. That's Did you see nice. that? No, I didn't, but I like that. It's brilliant. It's yeah. the Washington her Post. Her husband, yeah. That's and nice. So it made me think about something we talk about a lot at Dumbo Feather, which is conscious coupling. Mm. And um, you are one half of a very high profile and influential duo. So what's it like to work with your husband? We were talking about that before. I don't know. It's I don't. Know. We're just who we are. I, don't, I mean, we don't think. I mean, is it hard? You were saying it's hard sometimes. What's if it's? Well, I don't think of us as influential. I mean, that's just such a weird. Okay, so you are one half of a really boring, not influential couple. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Like, and I'm not saying that. Like, we genuine. Like, it's just you know, I ring him up and say, don't forget the milk and. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to rephrase the okay. question. Um, <laughs> I know you think your husband is a fox, <laughs> and yeah. I think mine is too, yeah. and we work with our husbands, yeah. and you've both got powerful things to say, mm -hmm. so how do you inspire one another? I think uh, the, at its crux, we su really support each other. Like, we are genuinely in each other's corner, and I think mm. that helps, especially, you know, um, if obviously far more Wally than me, but you can be in an industry um, that can be, people are just really openly critical of you. We really support each other. We want each other to succeed and we want each other to do great things and do what they want to do. So for example, um, Wally's about to go to England for two weeks on this trip with the UK government. And I'm like, of course you should go. Like, you know, I don't want to be that partner. It's like, well, now I'm stuck at home with the kids for yeah, two but weeks. Yeah, like part of you is selfish jokes. <laughs> well, no, because I believe that he would do the same for yeah. me. And that, you know, I don't want to be that partner that crushes the dream. You want to be the one, go and do it, it's great. Mm -hmm. um, because, because I have friends and I see that in their relationship and it just destroys the marriage from the inside out. It's like termites. It just destroys it. Um, and so I just think we, and I think one re reason Waleed and I work is that while we love each other very much, we genuinely really like each other. We really like each other. We like being together. Like, you know, it's our favorite thing to do is just go out for brunch and just talk about anything or sit on the couch and have a cup of tea. We like each other's company. I'm happy when I hear his key in the door. You know, it's not like, oh, that guy again. You know? <laughs> so, and I think, you know, I mean, we've been married for 14 years. So it's been a while. Um, but I think it just comes down to, we just really like each other. And he has a really high profile job at the moment, but that won't last forever. And, you know, that certainly wasn't who he was when I got married. We were both students. Um, and I think we both see 
fame and celebrity you know that he has is just so laughable and meaningless. Last week Brene Brown was talking um, yeah. for the School of Life in, in Sydney and she was saying this amazing thesis around those hate tweets or, or what we all do when we react from a place of anger. Talking about how we all have an SFD and the SFD is our shitty first draft. So when someone attacks us, mm. the SFD, if you've got Twitter, bang that puppy out mm. and you feel better, but on review, yeah. put that shit away. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And we and can all be guilty of that. Yeah. We can all be guilty of that. Like that, she, was, she used this great example of how her husband comes into the kitchen, she's having a hard day at work, he opens the fridge and he shouts at the fridge, there's no fucking baloney in this house. Yeah. And so her, like, quickly her brain goes to, he's blaming me yeah. for not cooking dinner, I need the number of a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much how it goes. Yeah. And then she's like, after they can't, you know, he calms her down. And she's like, <laughs> what were you thinking when you said that? And he goes, I was thinking, I was thinking, oh, I'm really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that That's we all right. do that. Yep, and we project onto other people and all that sort of stuff. And just have to let it go. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had a big microphone and the world was listening, mm. <laughs> What would you say? Well, I don't, what would I say? I don't know. I think it was, it sounds so cheesy and I know it's cheesy. Forgive me, forgive me, maximum cheese is coming. Yeah, good. But I guess I have to have these sort of positive (coughs) platitudes in my life to sort of, you know, keep going. Um, But I read it recently and I thought it was just so spot on. It says, in the end, love always wins. And if love hasn't won, it's not the end. And I thought, that's it. You just keep going with that. Just keep going with that. And if things aren't great and loving now, it's just not finished. Just keep going. And I thought, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) So on that note, uh, questions, please, for Susan. Hi. Hello. Um, I've been wondering um, a way to find a solution to this for a few years since probably the September 11 things. Like, how do you deal with people that are really anti-Muslim? Mm. Like, I'm not Muslim myself, but I like to think I'm open-minded and I just don't know what the response is to people that are really against, mm. you know, because of sensationalist newspapers. Yeah. Um, if I meet those people in real life, I will often try to find out where are they coming from because people don't hate that passionately for no reason. It normally comes from somewhere and gen- often it's, um, it's a genuine fear, like they are genuinely fearful that Muslims are going to take over and, and that sort of thing. So I will, if I can, I will try to talk to them and, and it's because I realised in, in my experience so often that fear comes from total ignorance, total complete ignorance. I remember this woman said to me, I've spoken on a panel with a woman once, very smart, very achieving woman, businesswoman, and she said to me, you know, Susan, all of my friends and I believe that all Muslim women are totally oppressed, and you need to know that that's what the average Australian thinks. And I said, okay, so do you have any Muslim friends? And she said, no. I said, do you know any Muslims? And she said, no. And I said, have you ever spoken to a Muslim before? And she said, until now, no. And I said, did it ever occur to you that maybe you don't have the full picture? Like they've never even spoken to a Muslim before and yet they've got this idea. And I can understand if all you knew about Islam was what you see in the media about ISIS and that sort of thing, I can see why people are frightened. It is not a lovely picture at all. It's a horrendous picture. And I, I do feel like that is one reason why the media, because here's the thing, in Australia, only does anyone know what percentage of Australia is Muslim? Ten percent. Anyone else have another guess? Two. It's two point six. You're not allowed to answer, Zulfia. You're Muslim, you know. Um, <laughs> it's two point six percent. So it's not a lot. There's about three hundred thousand Muslims in all of Australia, out of a you know population of twenty-three ish million, twenty-four million now, I think. So it's not many. So most people have never met a Muslim. 
They don't have a Muslim colleague, they don't have a Muslim neighbour. All they see about Islam is ISIS and beheadings and that sort of thing. And so that's why when there are so few Muslims in the world, the media has a responsibility to have a balanced view. They don't have to do our propagation, like, you know, we don't need propaganda from you, but there isn't a balanced view. That's the only, the reality is the only place people know about Muslims is the media and it's an awful picture they get. Um, and so I think so often the people that are really anti-Muslim are very frightened because they don't know anything. And what they think they know is often, you know, totally untrue. Like I remember I asked that question and I was giving a speech in, a, in rural Victoria and I asked, does anyone know how many people in Australia are Muslim? They go, oh, I know, 30%. Like it's wildly over-exaggerated because you see us in the media all the time. Like every time you turn on the news, there's another story, a horror, horror story. Like I acknowledge that. It's never, you know, great, you know, lovely Muslim woman helps her neighbour move the house. Like there's nothing like that. So it's all negative. And so I feel like, and maybe this is naive of me, but I feel like if people had more access to just facts, genuine facts, like people will say to me, why don't Muslims ever come out and condemn? Why don't you ever come out and condemn terrorism? You know, why don't your leaders ever come out and condemn terrorism? I hear that all the time. And the reality is anyone can get, on, get online and Google Muslims condemn terrorism and there is page after page after page. I know for a fact that all the Islamic organisations in Australia have issued however many press releases and they've written opinion pieces and they've done interviews and stuff like that. But people just don't seem to be aware of it. And at what point can we say, well, we are condemning. Why are you not hearing about it? I think that's a valid question that we, can be, we should be asking. Why are you not aware? Like, not long ago, there were, um, I think it was last year, this group, hundreds of Muslim scholars from around the world got together and they all wrote this classical refutation of ISIS. It was 300 pages, a cla like classical Islamic scholarly refutation, point by point, their treatment of women, treatment of children, what they do to slaves, all that sort of stuff. Point by point refutation of, you know, why they're wrong Islamically. Hundreds of Muslim scholars around the world did it. They had it translated to Arabic, English, French, Spanish, and they sent the press release all over the world. How many of you heard about this statement? One, okay, one. That's, and that, why are you not hearing about it? And so there is this imbalance of information that perpetuates fear. And so, like I said, I can understand why people are frightened if that's all you hear. Like, if that's all you heard, why, why wouldn't you be scared? Um, and so, like I said, if we can change the discourse and provide people with information. Go, well, what are you really frightened of? You know, okay, so you think Muslims are taking over Australia. Let's see if that's true, you know, and actually answer their questions. It won't always change their minds, but often it does. And I really feel that it's often that person-to-person -person interaction as well. So often people will say, you know, I used to think this way about Muslims, but then I had, you know, oh, Muhammad at work, he's all right, you know, and then it changes <laughs> things. They go, oh, he's he, that, that guy in IT, yeah, he's all right. <laughs> It's, and that is, that is often it's just that human contact that changes, that changes. But it's interesting what you're saying in terms of what Julian Burnside said at the empathy yeah. event. Because yeah. Julian Burnside was saying we're spending four and a half billion dollars keeping Muslims out when two women die a week in Australia from domestic violence. How's about your four and a half billion to stop that actual threat to Australians? Um, I don't, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't follow you, but I'm sure that you don't talk about hate. Mm. So how is it that people hate you? Mm. What is it that you think that you did that people hate you? And Rabino, on the contrary, does refute things on TV. Yeah. And people still hate you. Yeah. So how, how is it possible that people hate you and promote love? Yeah, I think people have an idea in there. And this was actually something that was sad but quite liberating for me to realise is it literally does not matter what you do people will decide who they hate and they will hate you. Like, they don't know me at all, obviously. And, you know, what astounded me was when I started this $1 donation to UNICEF, I thought, I'll choose UNICEF because no one could have a problem with that. <laughs> Guess what? I started getting abuse about that. Oh, you don't, why are you donating to this one and why not that one? And you know that UNICEF is this and that'd be right. But it's like, you cannot win. But when you realise that, it's actually really liberating because you realise, what they say tells me so much more about them and doesn't really say anything about me or you all you can do is be yourself live that 
life ideally, I guess we can only live a life of integrity and say, this is who I know I am. This is how I will react no matter what you do because my reaction isn't actually about you. It's about who I am. And so, you know, I've had horrible things tweeted to me. One guy spent a day just tweeting me photos of corpses. That's just what he did. Oh, <laughs> he must have had them stored on his computer. I don't know. But, and so of course, like my, or you know, they, they, tweet lies at me to try to, oh, you said this and you did this. And I think, no, I didn't. That's, I'm going to tell them what really, and then I think, no, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to get into this. It's just, you know, another mental $1 to go to UNICEF and just do what I know is right. And you just have to keep doing with that because I realise through this, nothing I do will change it. If I fight back, they keep going. If I ignore them, they keep going. Nothing was changing that. Yeah. Yeah. I have tried. It doesn't, for me, it didn't, like he said it really diffused the situation. For my guys, it really just made them more enthusiastic. Like, yes, we've got her. And another, like, pages and pages of emails and strange ramblings. And it just, no good was, no good was coming of it. It was just encouraging them and making me miserable. Next question. Yes, please, at the back. Um, I just had a question. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of that. I actually have two questions. I'll ask one. I'm so terrible. You mentioned at the beginning that wearing the hijab was a feminist act, and I I respect that. That um, there's a there's a feminist act in wearing a hijab and making a choice that no, I will decide who sees what parts of my body and when. There's a competing school of thought that says, well, my body is what it is, and women's bodies have been labelled as dangerous places for generations. And you see women, particularly after a rape happens and the victims blame because she was wearing something provocative, and they say, well, no, my choice is to bear my body, and it is what it is, and I will bear it. So my question is, is the feminist act in the wearing of the hijab or in the adopting of modesty, or is the feminist act in the choice? Mm. So, and that's a really good question. That's very much where the debate is in a feminism at the moment, especially in, in third wave feminism where we are, because um, we often hear that I, that conversation, well, feminism is about choice and it's my choice and so I'm feminist. And the, I think I feel the feminist issue with that is, does that mean every choice is feminist? So if a woman says, well, I choose to stay with my abusive husband who tells me that I'm superior to him, that he's superior to me and that I'm inferior to him, but that's my choice, can we say that that is a feminist choice? I, I feel that we, this idea that feminism is all about choices um, is problematic. That being said, I do absolutely understand the feminist argument about um, women's uh, bodies and empowerment and how they've been seen as something shameful and dirty and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, women, uh, you, you know, um, not covering or exposing parts of their bodies is pushing back against that. And I actually see it as two sides of the same coin, the covering or the not covering. In the end, the reality is we live in a patriarchal world. It's just the society that we live in. And uh, modesty is one way of pushing back against it. And uncovering is another way of pushing back against it. Um, and from a feminist argument, I don't know if you could say that one is inherently more feminist than the other. Um, I think that there are good arguments for both. But I do think this idea of choice is something that feminists need to keep critiquing because feminism, you know, when it was uh, sort of conceived in, in a scholarly way, feminism wasn't about choice. Feminism was about deconstructing the patriarchy. That's what it was about. And, and um, choice comes into it in a sense because women were so often not given choices and so I can see where that argument's come from. But I think we need to be careful about taking it to, uh, to a conclusion that suddenly means we're, this isn't feminism anymore. Feminism cannot be, it is a broad church, but it cannot be so broad as to be meaningless. Feminism has always had these debates raging within it and that's not a problem. Like I don't see that as negative at all, right? You know, from the first wave and second wave third way there's always been these internal often really vigorous debates and I see that as healthy it's like a regenerative fire that comes through and burns down old bits so new bits can grow I think you know that's it's not a problem to have these discussions 
I um, had the privilege of working in Afghanistan for 14 months and was privileged to work with very enlightened men who in fact recognised the value of women in society and also with women who were pushing back against a system that has dominated them for a very long time. But what I found in those conversations that I had with people that very much of, of that entrenched belief was culturally based rather than in religion. And I guess my question to you is, what have you found in your discussions post-PhD with other faiths, such as with Jewish faith and theocracies like Christianity, where the male-dominated paradigm is, is very much a part of that because I would say that in all of those sort of settings, it's culture that dominates those things rather than the hard religions that actually are part of it. And I just wondered what sort of discussions were happening because that's something a part of the process, helping people separate this fear of Islam from what we're being sort of, what, what is the reality on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you can see that if you look at the different way Islam is practiced in a country like Turkey compared to Afghanistan, compared to Indonesia, compared to Morocco, compared to Somalia. They are so different. It's the way the women dress is so different. The laws they have are so different. What is acceptable is, is so different and what's not acceptable because these are cultures as well. In the same way that how Christianity is practiced in the Bible Belt in America is very different to how it's practiced in uh, African, some African countries. Totally different because culture, of course, plays a role. You know, none of us exist in a vacuum and none of us are interpreting our religion. For those of us that have a religion, none of us are interpreting them through a vacuum. You know, we... Um, it's, uh, I said this, um, I apologise for any of you that listen to Michelle Laurie's podcast because I'm going to use the line that I use there. But, you know, as Muslims we say, you don't read the Quran, the Quran reads you. And what that set is saying is that what you, what you read of the book, the Muslim holy book, and it would be the same with the Torah and, you know, the Gospels and that sort of thing, what you read of those texts and come away with tells us so much more about you and who you are than what the book says, which is why you can get two Muslims who would claim that they're very practicing Muslims, one be a pacifist Sufi who's all about loving God and just serving people and, you know, very, you know, might be very feminist or whatever, and then you get the really strict warlord types who goes, yes, this is my, what my religion is telling me to do. Same book, but they're coming with totally different interpretations. And it's because absolutely it's culture, but it's also it's people. You know, people are going to bring themselves to a religion. And it's, you know, as humans, I think we find it very validating to interpret a religion in a way that is very self-serving to us. You know, and so if I'm a man who wants to think that I'm superior, I will find that in my religion. Um, or if I'm a person who um, feels insecure and feels under siege, I'm going to find things in my text that says that I'm allowed to hate the outsider and that they're bad or dirty or less because that's what our heart is, is saying about us. You know, it, the religion is just a, like a magnifying glass on the person that just shows us who, who we really are. And I think who we choose to be. Absolutely. As Absolutely. well. So I'm sorry we don't have time for more questions. Um, but I just wanted to thank Susan mm. from all of us. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. To hear more from Susan, check out issue 47 of Dumbo Feather. And to find out about upcoming conversation series events, head to our website, dumbofeather.com. This podcast was supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests in conservation projects and will never invest customers' money in fossil fuels. Where you bank every day makes a difference.